this week on Life and Faith. Well, uh, as the great Duke Ellington once said, there are no wrong notes in jazz, just good or bad choices. The way it works is a little bit different maybe from what some people think. I've heard people say to me, oh, jazz must be easy, you can just play anything you want. But actually, uh, jazz is very difficult because you can play anything you want. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And yes, this is Life and Faith, though if you're a regular listener, you'll have noticed that is not our usual theme music. No, it's not. And this week we're asking the music to do some of the heavy lifting for us as we think our way through an elusive concept, freedom. Now, we all think we know what it is. It's basic. It's essential. Whoever you are and whatever your life is like, you probably want more freedom. But what is it? For us, this idea began here, with an exchange Simon had with James K.A. Smith, the Canadian-American writer and philosopher. Artists like, say, for instance, Bruce Springsteen, he often talks about the, the idea of freedom is that you get away. You hit the road and you're on this sort of journey. And... It's busting out of town. It's, you know, we're born to run, this sort of stuff. That's a very powerful notion in our society, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. In, in music, film as well. I mean, think of um, uh, the, the, the centrality of the road trip as the very embodiment of liberty uh, and freedom and yeah. finding oneself, right? You get away to find yourself. And I, I think it's because... Uh, ironically, it's because we actually have a fairly stunted notion of freedom. That is, we think about freedom uh, primarily in negative terms. Uh, uh, the, the Oxford philosopher Isaiah Berlin used to distinguish what he called negative freedom and positive freedom. And, and I would say mostly what we think of when we use the word freedom is entirely negative freedom, which is we think we are free just to the extent that we have thrown off constraints. It's hands off. I'm, I, I'm the master of myself and I'm autonomous and independent and self-sufficient and I will get to decide my good. And, and, and that notion of freedom usually comes with the sense that if I can just multiply my options, I'm actually making myself more free. I think that's, that's, um, it's why libertarianism is so attractive to us. It's, it's why licentiousness is so attractive to us. The, the problem is that um, we often actually don't experience that as expanding our freedom because we aren't empowered to choose the good. So there's, there's a sense in which this irony, this, this paradoxical irony in which we imagine being free as being without constraint and having as many options as possible. And then that just becomes the recipe for our enslavement, our imprisonment, our addiction. I actually think it is the recipe for our addiction. And all of a sudden freedom means being enchained. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a curious and, and sad um, paradox to it all. The Paradox of Freedom, that's our theme and our starting point for today. Now, this irony that Smith talks about runs through all of life. 
that being free from constraints can actually leave us, ironically, in chains. And on the flip side of that coin, the right constraints can actually make us free. So we went looking for some examples of how that plays out. Well, the great Louis Armstrong said, if you need to ask what jazz is, you'll never know. But uh, I think probably the most distinct thing, there are two things I'd say that make jazz very distinct. One is the swing feel, um, which is unique to jazz um, and impossible to notate, actually. But you know it when you hear it. And the second is improvisation, which is not, of course, unique to jazz, but it is central to the way jazz works. Uh, the, The idea of creating the music as you play together as a spontaneous group improvisation is at the heart of jazz. Con Campbell is a jazz musician. His instrument is the saxophone. He's also a New Testament scholar. Now, the music you're hearing throughout this episode comes from Transit Jazz, the band he plays with, and it's their interpretation of a hymn called Just a Closer Walk With Thee. Now, jazz is one area of life where the constraints and how you play with them, well, that's really what makes it what it is. Well, uh, as the great Duke Ellington once said, there are no wrong notes in jazz, just good or bad choices. But um, the, the way it works is a little bit different maybe from what some people think. I've heard, heard people say to me, oh, jazz must be easy. You can just play anything you want. But actually, uh, jazz is very difficult because you can play anything you want. And uh, the improvisation doesn't just work by playing any note here or there or playing in any key you choose or at any tempo. You know, for the music to work, Everyone in the group needs to be playing in the same key. Everyone needs to be playing at the same tempo. And in jazz, most, most forms of jazz follows a, a chord structure, a harmonic structure where chords are, it's moving through chords. It might be a very simple one with just three chords repeated, or it might be very complicated with dozens of chords. And the improvisation happens by kind of threading the needle. So when you are creating a melody, spontaneously creating the melody, you need to know enough about the harmonic structure of the tune that you're playing to select notes that are going to sound good with the, against the chord that is playing at that moment. So um, that's actually a craft that takes a lifetime to do well. It's not easy at all. Uh, and it means that our improvisation, while there's a lot of freedom there, it's actually within these uh, parameters. It, it's within structures. Um, that makes it sound good. Otherwise, you know, if you if you don't know how to play within those structures, it will not sound good for the listener. It will sound, you know, very discordant um, and just kind of random and won't sound like music. Jazz takes work. It needs parameters, and without those things, it's chaos. Well, I think of it. It's like a conversation. You know, we're we're speaking right now. And I'm, I'm actually improvising. I'm improvising what I'm saying right now. And you might not be because you wrote down your questions beforehand, but, but I'm improvising. Okay. But I, I'm doing, I'm following rules that we both understand. You know, I'm using words that we both share that you, you know the meaning of them and I know the meaning of them. And I'm following grammatical structures that make sense. If I just start dropping in random words like hippopotamus, rainbow, cornflower, and expect you to understand, you, you're going to scratch your head and think, what's, the, what's that about, right? So, 
So actually speech in a conversation, not just speech, like speaking by myself, but, but having a conversation is a perfect analogy for the way jazz works because you have total freedom, but it's within the structures that exist uh, within our language, in this case, modern English, that are commonly shared and understood. And my improvising, as I speak, only works within those structures. So I can talk about whatever I want to talk about, but I can't just pick random words here or there uh, that, that, that don't make sense together. You know, and j jazz is like that. There, you, you absolutely need those restrictions. I don't really like the word restrictions. I prefer parameters. You know, there's even rules, rules is wrong, sort of, but they're kind of parameters that work. They're, they're shared parameters so that you understand what I'm saying and I understand what you're saying. And, and I did write some questions down, but, but again, I anticipated, I'm kind of responding to things you're saying. So there, yeah, we're both sort of engaging in that way, aren't we? Um, then tell us how might this be a metaphor for other things in life? Have you ever found it to be that? I have found it to be that. Um, I think it resonates quite strongly with, uh, say, the teaching of Jesus. Uh, he says mm. in in part of the Bible in John chapter 8 that the truth will set you free. And it, it's an interesting thing to think about because I, I, I think for a lot of people in our culture, freedom is the complete absence of any restriction or parameter or you know, anything like that. It's, 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 it's kind of complete autonomy, but Jesus situates freedom in with truth. Um, and truth, uh, you know, I think for some people today sounds like a kind of a, a oppressive idea, even, you know, like, you know, um, yeah. well, my, there's my truth and there's your truth. So there's no absolute truth. And, and the idea of any absolute truth is really restrictive. And you, you, you're, you're killing my joy with that idea, that sort of thing. But, but for Jesus, it's actually there is a truth, and he's kind of saying that that actually will give you freedom. And I, for me, I find um, that that resonates with all parts of life, and, and especially in jazz, you know, that we are playing in the key of G right now. I'm not going to play in G, and you're going to play in E-flat. Like, I've got my truth, and you've got your truth, and, and whatever. No, if it's going to work, we both have to – there has to be a true key that we're playing in right now together, and that's just the reality, and the freedom – can only operate if we acknowledge that together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and I guess at its best moments, that that experience maybe is a bit like when all the pieces come together in a great jazz moment, where there's this of harmony and beauty in that, right? Yeah, absolutely. The harmony and the beauty and the, the sense that we're we're creating something together, um, and in that moment, but shared. You know, I I really don't like practicing my saxophone on my own. I really love the interaction of playing with others. And, and, and that's life is not meant to be done on your own, right? It, it really is not very good on your own. No. It's, it's meant, we're meant to, we're social creatures, we're meant to relate to others. And, and that's where we really find joy and harmony and peace. When Simon and I started talking about this paradox of freedom, and maybe this says a little bit about the two of us, his mind went to jazz, mine went to poetry. The way it started was um, I was working on a larger piece, like a longer writing piece. And um, one day I found my laptop open, which I must have left it open. And 
8,000 words were gone, like just vanished, <laughs> which was basically half the work was, had disappeared and no one could find the words. So the only thing that I can think of is that someone that I love very much, I'm sure accidentally as a toddler, perhaps <laughs> played on my computer and accidentally lost the words. So I, that was pretty scarring for that week where I was like, oh, words just disappeared. There's no permanence. I can't be certain that they won't just vanish. So then I thought, well, what I can do is write very tiny things and try and put some boundaries up on those little tiny things, haiku, and just write within that little small room and then have a sense of satisfaction and completion of that I've, I've created I've created a thing. Laurel Moffat is a writer. She writes for us at CPX sometimes. She writes lots of different things, among them haiku. There's different forms of haiku, but the one that I play with or have played with is five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, and those three lines, you know, first line five, second line seven, third line five again. Usually, Laurel's haiku make me think of that William Blake line, to see a world in a grain of sand. Some of her haiku are funny. Uh, there's one that I really like that reads, a trip to Costco left me both deeply scarred and a Gold Star member. Relatable for some of us. Uh, another one called Heartwarming goes like this. You've lain kindling down in my heart's hearth, lit a match and set all aglow. What's the advantage of like putting it in that 575 form and kind of taking those constraints on you? Yeah, what, yeah, that's, that's the question, isn't it? Why, why form? But one of the things I think is that the, the boundaries of a, of a poem, like the, by setting up a form, like either you're using a haiku or you're using other elements of form, and that might be um, allusions to other pieces of literature, it might be a rhyme scheme, it might be um, the metaphors that you use. Uh, whatever the parameters you decide to use in a poem, are the walls that you kind of bounce against or play with in order to form an expression, to make a tiny world is the way I think of it, that someone can then enter into the, the poem. Um, the idea that the poet, the poet creates a space in a poem, a room, a stanza, another word for room, where a reader can enter into it and experience something that the poet wants the reader to experience. And I think that you see this in everything. I mean, you see this in um, like in any kind of art form. So like um, a sculptor will um, decide to make a sculpture. Well, they, they choose the material out of which the sculpture will be made. And that material then creates parameters and how do you create the sculpture, um, you know, Creating something out of granite is different from creating something out of sandstone that's different from actually using the soft clay that you form with your hands. And I also think of it, sometimes I think about it um, like, say there's interior design or architecture, you know, in order to create a space, you actually have to have the walls that you have to play with and to choose the color, to choose the furniture, and to put the placement of things in a room. You always have to have a form start with or you have to make the form that you then play with and that's that's one of the ways I think about poetry. 
I asked Laurel to pick one of her haiku in particular to share with us. Well, I have one that I wrote that was about writing. Um, so it was about writing a haiku, but also writing in general. Um, and it's called Let's Go Fly a Kite. And it's illustrated with a little kite. <laughs> but the haiku is, jot it down so you can watch your thought bob and glide on the page a while. So I think that that speaks to writing in general. Like, why do you write? Why does anyone write? It's to get a thought out of a mind and onto a page so that it can hopefully go into another mind somewhere else. Um, and similar to a kite where you, you try something. I mean, that's our phrase, you know, to go, go fly a kite, as in to give it a try, but to put it out there in the wind and see if the wind will take it and carry it. Um, so I liked that one. That was fun because I think that's also, that's a bit like um, writing. It's a little bit of an act of faith, you know, to see, see if your words can actually um, hover on the air a bit longer than just saying them and have them speak and then disappear. You know, you want, it's, it's not, um, a kite is not the most permanent thing <laughs> in the world, but it has a little bit more permanence than just a, um, a word spoken and forgotten. It's interesting to me that this is where both Con and Laurel ended up, this idea of community, communication, relationship. The point is trying. The point is not like actually being the best or, you know, defeating all writers who've come before you because there's no way you can do it. And also there's more to come. So um, all one can try to do is these um, raids on the inarticulate. And I think that's trying to find the best words to make um, an idea um, articulate to another. It's about, it really is about um, relationships with others, I think communicating with another person. This is Life and Faith, and we're exploring the paradox of freedom. Let's call it FOMO. Not the fear of missing out, but the freedom of missing out. Maybe even the art of missing out. The freedom to be found within some boundaries. Coming back to James K. Smith and to Bruce Springsteen. Sorry to hark on Springsteen. It may not be something someone you. Um, oh, I'm you, but, a big fan. <laughs> okay, but I remember hearing him once in a concert talking about how he came to this realization that having put all these people on the road, <laughs> metaphorically, he realized eventually that he needs a destination for them. And yes, you can be out on your own on the road, but ultimately you need to come back into community. I thought that was a really interesting progression in his way of thinking. And it seems to connect a little bit with what you're talking about in the sense that true community involves interrelationships that necessarily put some kind of constraint on us. We sort of give something up in order to get something else. Yeah. I, I, I also think that there is a not accidental correlation, but, between our, our narrow view of freedom as autonomy and independence and our increased social isolation and loneliness. Mm. Because basically all we can imagine are these atomistic autonomous individuals who are trying to make up their own version of the good. And, and we get sealed into 
these these cubicles of self-concern uh, and we are walled off from community. So it's true, positive freedom, this is the kind of freedom that someone like St. Augustine points to, which is positive freedom isn't just freedom from constraint, it is freedom for the good, which means knowing what the destination is to use uh, Springsteen's uh, term there. It, but it also means being empowered to be able to chase it, <laughs> uh, to be able to choose it. And that requires, now for, that requires a grace, uh, a possibility of the renewal of agency. Um, and that's what, what Augustine thinks is held out to us in, in the mystery of Christianity, that, that this possible, it's not just cookie cutter conformity to rules, it's the actual infusion of agency so that we become the human beings we were made to be. And then, and, and community is a huge piece of that. Now, community isn't a constraint that I have to run away from. Community can also be the scaffolding that gives me structure so that I have an identity and agency to be able to pursue that good. I think it's, um, I, I do wonder increasingly if we are reaching uh, a point in our culture where people have experienced enough the disillusion and, and liquefaction that has happened from our notion of freedom and are looking around and wondering if there's a better way to be human. Let's raise the stakes a little here from jazz and haiku to marriage. Another instance of taking on certain constraints and the flourishing that can happen once those are in place. Simon spoke with Christine and Greg Olive, who are currently in their 50th year of marriage. I just want to cast you back one or two years to your wedding day. It's a little while ago now. Uh, can you remember what you vowed on that day? What were the promises you made, roughly? Roughly, what were they? Love, yes. honour, obey, <laughs> the, old, the old promises. Oh, yes. Yes, the traditional ones. Um, care for one another in sickness and health. For better or worse. Richer or poorer. That kind of thing. That kind of thing, yes. When you think about yourself before you got married, what do you think of that person now? What would you have said to them perhaps on the day that you now know that you might have been helpful for that, that young person to know? Uh, well, I guess for me, making those promises when I got married was kind of turning my life around in a sense because up until that time, most of my decision-making was about what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And if I decided I wanted to do something, I didn't have to consider another person. There was that, you know, it was about, it was about where I thought, you know, I had my career planned out. I had, um, you know, the idea of working overseas planned out. I knew what study I wanted to do. All those kinds of things were all planned by me for what I wanted to do. And um, I don't, as I say, the, the getting married and bringing another person into it was a big change. Yes, for me, okay. uh, leading up to that time, uh, you know, when I left school, I went to look for a job. I applied for five jobs. I got offered five jobs. That was what it was like. And uh, so I had a choice to make of whatever one you thought was the one you wanted. And um, I was far more interested, I suspect, in, in sport than study in those days. So um, I chose the job that would fit in with that. Um, and in some ways that carried over uh, maybe to marriage, but I, I, I used to do a lot of surfing in the period before we got married. I took my surfboards away on the car. I, they never went on in the water honeymoon. on our honeymoon. <laughs> yes. They never went in the water. 
and uh, I've never surfed since on a surfboard. So there we go. So, you know, you do make changes. Oh, I didn't tell him not to, so. Well, that's a terrible sacrifice you've made there. Greg. Absolutely. That's very serious. And so let's talk a bit more about that, because um, I'm joking about that being a sacrifice, although I actually think it is. But what are the other ways in which marriage really is, can be a sacrifice? Uh, well, you, I think you have to learn to live with a person who, uh, while uh, you may have many things in common and agree to many things, that, that there are other things that one has to work through that uh, might, might be difficult in terms of your own individuality and uh, uh, you know, what, what you do, what you give up. Um, when, when children come along, you have to make a lot of uh, new uh, changes in, in the way that you lived your life. Um, maybe a lot uh, less of independence in, in that area as well. You must have had your moments where you've thought, oh my gosh, I could do without all this. I want out. I think sometimes there were moments when you think this is harder than I thought, but I really, for me, um, making a commitment was important. And so I never really wanted to run away from it, but I just want, sometimes wanted it to be different <laughs> in, in some ways. I guess at various times there were, there are, um, you know, like making decisions about where we go next, because I moved from... So for me, I'd had a very stable life. I grew up on the northern beaches and I was going to stay there. Part of my plan was that I would always live there because I love the water. And um, I found myself traipsing all over the world with Greg and we've never lived, um, we've never lived near the water once. So <laughs> it's been a change for both well, this of us. Is, there's a bit of a theme here that I'm not warming to, which is the, the abandoning of the beach. It's, uh, this, is, this is what marriage is about. I don't know if I want a part of this. Um, Greg, what about you? T- tough times, surely, in, in, a, in a marriage as long as yours. Yes. Um, the thing is, Simon, um, my uh, father was a returned soldier and um, was uh, entirely different from what he used to be before the war uh, in that he became pretty much um, you know, an alcoholic and headed down that pathway and was uh, quite violent when he was, uh, was drunk. And I can remember... Uh, as, as a young teenager, just thinking, you know, what my mother had to put up with um, until I got big enough to uh, sort of bail her out. And I used to think, um, I will never do that. You know, I, I, you know, I'll never strike a woman. I will never become belligerent like he used to be. I will never do all of those things. So I think in some ways that's governed my thinking. So, um, you know, that, that, that was the, the model that I grew up with. And uh, that is what coloured our marriage, I, I felt that you know we there were there were things that one had to give and uh, take, but there was more giving than taking. So just quickly, like advice to younger people who sort of look at a choice like that and think, "Gosh, that's a massive sacrifice." Anything you'd say to them? There is a sense in which it is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of what you can do as an individual, and you have to then join into what you can do as a couple. I guess if I would. For me, if I were going to give advice, I would really not so much tell them how to do it as to talk about the things that have enriched me through being in a partnership like this, the things that I've learned. So I've been enriched by by being with Greg and seeing the way he deals with things, which is different from the way I deal with things. So I've learned from him, but particularly I think both of us have learned from having children. Um, That brings a whole new dynamic into the relationship and um, children challenge you about the way you think um, in the way you bring them up you have to think carefully about them and and what it's going to mean for them the, the words you say to them the actions you take 
um, the way you encourage them and nurture them, all those things are important. And I found that I started to think differently in a number of areas because of bringing up children and having to explain things to them. It, it impacted me a lot. Uh, much, much the same as Christine. She stole words out of my mouth. Oh, but I? Um, <laughs> I mean, we, we had a cross-cultural marriage because I grew up on the city beaches side of Sydney and Christine on the northern <laughs> beaches. Um, yes, that is a cross-culture. Yep. It's, it's amazingly so. Um, but I think now, you know, that, that is mm. very common in terms of genuine cross-cultural relationships uh, in our uh, society, we have a couple in our own family, um, and I think you know, it's, marriage is something that just has to be worked at and um, uh, constantly worked at, uh, and it's just you know try to work your way through every situation. Uh, may look like a challenge, as you mentioned earlier, but I, I think it can also be uh, something that uh, can sort of bring you closer together if you really uh, discuss things and, and work things through and. Um, pay careful attention to uh, how, how you organise your life. Um, in, the, in the Christian Bible, there's a text that says, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I think this is great for every nation in the world, um, you know, every religious person, because uh, things fester away if you don't deal with them immediately. And I think that's a, uh, that, you know, that's a way that we've tried to live our lives in, the, in that particular area so that we solve problems before they become major issues. Yep. And I think the other thing that I've really valued from being independent, it is actually great to have someone there at your side and at your back and, you know, to support you and encourage you and nurture you and do all those really good things that happen in marriage that don't happen in the same way when you're living on your own. Mm. You've given us a good crack. It's almost 50 years. What's the best thing about being married for that long? Oh... Well, it's, it's just, you get to know each other better and better, but things, there are new things that have come. For me, I think one of the best things at this stage of my life is, um, is having Greg and having our children and having our grandchildren. It's just wonderful to have that expanded family. I just, I love it so much. Um, you know, I think the experiences that we've had together that we reflect on when the family gets together, there's lots of laughter about various things that have happened at various times in our lives. and. There's lots of interest in how our children are developing and growing and watching them um, grow with their children too and their children growing up. And there's just always just love and laughter around the place. And I really, I really value that so much. Has faith helped you in, in sort of fostering a healthy long-term relationship? Has it played any role? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think it's, my faith is the foundation of my commitment in the first place, and and but also my faith um, teaches me that it's really love is really the key, not not just sentimental emotional love, but the practical love that deals with lives with other people and works with other people and deals with other people, and that that's a thing that develops as you practice it. It's not something that's just an emotional sentimental response that you probably have initially when you first meet someone, but you learn to to do the the, the work of love. And I guess it's the only way I can think to describe it at the moment, that love in action is the important thing that I've learnt from that. Mm. And, and I think that's helped me in so many ways to go back to that and to remember that, to remember that I'm loved and, um, and I'm not perfect, so therefore I can love other people who aren't perfect. <laughs> I concur with that. We could leave you on that note of agreement, harmony, 
But of course, life is just not always like that. The paradox of freedom is that humans enjoy more freedom within constraints, the right constraints, than outside of them. But that doesn't mean we don't chafe against the boundaries. Here's James K. Smith drawing together both Augustine and Bruce Springsteen to bring us home. I think we should be honest that Augustine is honest that it's a little complicated, right? So it's sort of like in this life in which we are born to run, the first grace is finally the gift of knowing where home is and the assurance of a God who comes and gets us and is bringing us home, right? It gives us the agency to be able to, to pursue that. I, I One of the things I guess I love about St. Augustine is he is also honest that we still have many miles to go before we sleep and that there is still a kind of restlessness that can characterize even a well-ordered, rightly ordered, rightly directed life. And, and I feel like, by the way, I think this is something else that Bruce Springsteen is a good uh, profit of, right? It's just just owning the restlessness that still besets a life, even when you know what a life well loved, lived looks like. And um, I, I, I love Augustine for his honesty about the difficulty of that. Um, but it's also why hope is the key virtue here, right? Because you you are entrusting yourself to the one who will bring you home. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Lots of guests to thank today. Firstly, Con Campbell and his band Transit Jazz for the music in this episode. Thanks to Laurel Moffat, and you can read some of her haiku and look at them. They're very much a visual experience as well. At her site, Make Whimsy, Not War. We'll put links to the jazz and Laurel's work in the show notes. Thanks also to Christine and Greg Olaf, and congratulations to them on 50 years of marriage. And of course, James K.A. Smith. If you want to hear more from him, and why wouldn't you, we did a longer interview with him in an episode back in March. It's called The Story of Your Life. Our producer, Anthea Godsmark, tells me we have to leave a rating or review. Please do it. Share this episode with friends that you think might enjoy it. And why not let us know what you thought? You can email us at podcast at publicchristianity.org. Next week. We got a call at midnight. I think my wife answered the phone and said yes. I don't think she was fully awake. But (laughs) two hours later, a police van pulls up outside our house. Two lovely female police officers get out and they open the back of the van and four children come out. (laughs) And they're they're in our lounge at like 2 a.m. in the morning. And they look like kind of rabbits caught in the headlights of a car. They're shell-shocked. They've just come from the police station. They've been removed from a domestic violence situation. And our job as foster parents is just to make them feel safe and secure that this is an okay place. It's going to be okay. We're going to look after you.